Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please welcome Jerry Fiocca and Robert Guffey. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you so much, David, and thank you all for coming. What an amazing place. Uh, bookstores are community centers, and Skylight has been upholding this tradition for how many years there? Eight, 18 years. Give it up for Skylight. <laughs> Robert, it's an honor and a pleasure, my friend. It's, it's, we've known each other since, uh, what, 1995? 95, yep. I, you were age 21 then. Oh, there we go. 93. 93? Yeah. Well, in 95, you listened to a radio show I had on KPFK, and we had Bob Dobbs, the genuine fake Bob Dobbs, and yes. we had Bill Mitchell. And Bill Mitchell was a political researcher who subbed for Abby Hoffman, and he said, taught me well that if you're going to study a subject, learn the motives and the consequences. So we'll just start right off the bat, Robert. What were your motives writing this book, and what have been the consequences? Uh, the motives? Okay, there I was. It was uh, 2003. It was the summer. I, was just, I had just been initiated into the third degree of Freemasonry, and Dion, he's called Dion in the book. His real name's Damien. He lived in San Diego at the time. I called him up to tell him what had just happened with the third degree. He wasn't at home, which was, and then he never called me back. And he didn't call me back for a whole week, which was unusual. When he finally did call me back a week later, he told me this incredible story that he had been having a party at his house. A guy, a kid he'd known for three days who had gone AWOL from Camp Pendleton and had stolen uh, 23 pairs of high-tech night vision goggles, a truck, a 9mm Iraqi pistol stolen from the body of a dead general, and a DOD laptop computer, and took all these things into Damien's house. Now, there's people coming in and out of Damien's house all the time. It was a party house. He literally only knew the guy, this kid, for three days, but he didn't know he had gone AWOL from Camp Pendleton, nor did he know that he'd brought the stolen uh, items into his house. Until uh, the kid opened up the DOD laptop computer and the DOD symbol like appeared on the screen, you know, and Damien goes, "Holy shit! Get this, get this cheap jack shit out of here!" You know, before they track it down. He's like, "They're not. They can't track it." Uh, and then within like boom, like five seconds later, there's an, an officious knock at the door. It's the NCIS. Before there was the TV show. Wait, go back and just tell people they might not know. What's DOD and what's NCIS? The, the, the DOD is Department of Defense. Okay. NCIS is basically the like the CIA of the of the Navy, Great. Of, the, of the military. Okay. And um, there's a woman at the door who I call Lita Johnson, but that's not her name. But if you take the T and change it by one letter, then you'll have a real name. Um, She's knocking at the door. Damien opens it. Damien's dad was a narcotics cop, and Damien was a lifelong heroin addict, so he knew how to deal with police officers. Uh, And uh, she's there with two other guys in black suits, uh, and she says, we're here to search your house. 
And Damien says, you can't search my house. And they said, well, we're going to get a warrant. Uh, and Damien said, come back with a warrant. And then he closes the door. There's a party going on at this moment. There's a bunch of people in the apartment on Garnett Avenue, uh, and they're doing all sorts of illicit substances. Damien says, everyone, pick up your drugs and go out the back door. Everyone throws their drugs onto Damien's floor, and then they go out the back door. So uh, within a few minutes, they have the warrant, and they come in, and they start searching the place. There's drugs everywhere. They don't care about that. They want to know specifically where these night vision goggles were. That was their main point of interest. And some of them were there. Apparently some of them were not there. Uh, So they arrest Damien, and they arrest the kid, whose name was either Lee or Doyle. We never figured that quite out. He said his name was Lee. Later, when the NCIS was interrogating Damien, they kept calling him Doyle. So... His name was Lee Slash Doyle. Uh, They arrest Damien. They take him down to San Diego jail downtown for seven days. And they did the Abu Ghraib treatment on him for about seven days. They're they're asking him the same question over and over again. What were you intending on doing with these items when you stole them? And Damien's like, I didn't steal them. This kid who I barely knew, he stole them, I guess. Uh, And and they're like, okay, what what are your connections with Al-Qaeda? What you know, over and over again the same question, and eventually you know he said I knew this guy three days. I don't know anything about this. They didn't believe that, uh, and they wanted him to um, testify against the, this kid. And Damien, since his father's a narcotics cop, has this sort of in his DNA, a hatred of all authority. So he, it's like the worst person to do this to. He's just compl- the most stubborn person in the world. So he refused to cooperate. He said, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and after seven days, they let him go. And he thought, obviously, they came to their senses. They figured out that I don't know anything, and they just let me go. Then when they let him go, within 24 hours... He tells me, he's telling me all this on the phone, that, that, that a, a, a plethora of people are following him everywhere. Uh, he goes to a 7-Eleven, nine guys follow him in, you know, like a Marx Brothers movie. Go to the Salvation Army, a different group of ten guys follow him in. It's never the same people. And at first I thought he was suffering from some sort of meth paranoia. That's the only logical explanation. I can imagine them sending one person to follow someone, or maybe two, but to 15, 30, it suddenly it was ballooning. You know, within a week, there's got to be at least 100 people following me. And I said, well, okay, if, if, if that's the case, I've known him since I was 16, you know. So I, I, I know him when he was high, I know him when he wasn't high, and I knew what his behavior was, and extreme paranoia was not one of them. Uh, and I said, well, okay, take photographs. He said there were these people parked outside his house uh, and that they were clearly following him. It was, they, would, they would draw attention to themselves. They weren't trying to be covert about it. Their purpose was to make him know that they were following him and to unsettle him in various ways. Uh, the Mexican restaurant down the street that was going out of business, suddenly they were making money all over the place because there's all these hundreds of people coming in following Damien and buying a burrito uh, every day. So I told Damien, I go, listen, take a photograph of the license plates and send me the photographs. He does that. 
And I just so happen to have a friend who works at DMV up in Seattle. So he ran all these plates. And they all, uh, none of them officially existed. In other words, if they were, if he was lying and he just took a photograph of a license plate and he was paranoid, something would come up. It would be a real person. But the only license plates that exist and are not in the system are government vehicles. And these were several, you know, at least a dozen of these license plates. So uh, that was the first indication that I thought, okay, maybe it's not just paranoia. Uh, and then uh, things started getting stranger and stranger. Uh, they were, um, he claimed that people were inside his house who he could not see. And he'd be in the living room and somebody would push him, but nobody was there. Friends of his would come in and they said, it seems as if um, your house is getting smaller. Sometimes someone would uh, come in and go, it looks like your house is getting bigger. The inside would grow like, like Doctor Who's TARDIS, uh, depending on who was coming in. He would look out the window sometimes, and what was always there was no longer there. It was like this Boris Vallejo science fiction painting with three moons in the sky outside the window. He'd open the door, and it was normal reality. Uh, one night, a shadow appeared on his wall, a hand with a gun in it, and the gun would tilt up and point at his head. Um, uh, one time he's in the bathroom and he opened the mirror in the bathroom on the medicine cabinet and as it was turning he saw a person behind him and then he turned and they weren't there it was only in the second that the mirror was, in, was turning that he saw them later on he uh, was seeing them in the house but only in the form of these little like auras, almost like uh, what you see when you have a, an intense migraine headache, these little dots in the air. Uh, Damien's not a physicist. Uh, he doesn't know anything about science, but as he was telling me this stuff, it seemed to make sense that, okay, they'd be visible in the mirror because light-bending technology, who knows? Uh, um, th this continued, it escalated. Uh, finally, it got to the point where he even he, he uh, uh, this woman, this NCIS woman, she'd show up at the door from time to time. Have you changed your mind? Would you like to talk now? Uh, and he'd say, No, I haven't changed my mind. And she'd say, Oh, okay. She'd get in the car and drive away. And then as she was driving away, 18 cars would come in the parking lot. Uh, one day he was out in the kitchen, and there were these two guys like stationed right outside the the, the window behind the fence. Uh, and they were they would just stand there, uh, and and he's in the kitchen. And he was making uh, spaghetti or something, and, and and it was beginning to piss him off that these people were there. So he he just started putting in all this goop, tang and peanut butter and Jello and talcum powder and flour, and he like mixed it all up into this goo. And then he he opened up the window and threw it on these two guys, and he watched them like run away off into the Vaughn's parking lot. Okay, flash forward, uh, finally it's gotten to the point where they're actually sending in, um, uh, I was on the phone with him one night, and he was talking, he goes, they're outside, they're, they're blaring the music on the, on the car, and they would send in these acoustic bullets, things would shatter, just as if a ghost had come through and like knocked something off, you know? Um, and sometimes they would uh, put like a kind of, remember Get Smart, the cone of silence? Okay, all, all ambient noise would end in the room, there, which sounds like 
well, big deal. But if suddenly you can't hear anything, yeah. it's really disturbing. And I would, I would hear that through the phone. Uh, um, uh, in the midst of all this, it got to the point where he actually called up Lisa Johnson and asked to make a deal. Can I meet with you? She goes, okay, you can meet with me and my superior. And they met at a bagel shop on Garnet Avenue. And uh, he, he, Damien comes up with the brilliant idea that he's going to propose. He had heard like through the grapevine that, that some of these goggles might have ended up with the Hell's Angels because they were using them to uh, ship illegal drugs over the border and that, and that some of them had ended up with them. So he was going to suggest that he go out and retrieve the goggles for them. Like, he could, he could work for them. Like, he thought that that was, that was going to get them off his back right. if he offered to do this. And I said, no, 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 no. They're going to think you're holding out on them. You've had them this whole time, and now you want, like, money for it. No, 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 no. He wouldn't take my advice. So he met with them. When he proposed what he proposed, they just got pissed off. And uh, he, he said to her, I don't want to have any more food fights with the feds. Uh, <laughs> connecting back to the thing in the kitchen, right? And uh, Miss Johnson uh, smiled and she said, uh, oh yes, that was amusing. That was the one time where they actually admitted that, that they had been watching them. you know, Because yeah. up to this point, they would be coy about it. Oh, we're not following you. Mm. Um, that didn't go well because uh, the guy, her superior, who was there at the meeting, he when when Damien started dictating demands, you know, he was like, "Well, maybe you can pay me X amount of money, and then I can retrieve them for you." And he's like, "You son of you, f- drug freak, son of a bitch! I'm not making any deals with you." You know, that pissed off Damien. It didn't end well, and then and then it just started up all over again that night. Well, uh, I happened to have her business card because Damien had sent it to me. So uh, I actually called her on the phone, uh, I, I, and I recorded the conversation. I still have the recording of it. The transcript of the conversation is, the, is in there. It was only like a five-minute phone call. But I called her, and I said, you know, my friend Damien, and then she's like, where would you get my phone number? I go, I got it from Damien. He gave it to me. And then she goes, okay. And I said to her, uh, are you following my friend? You know, he claims that you're, you're following him. And, and she immediately started using, like, cover-your-ass kind of language. You know, she was like, oh, uh, no one in my agency is currently following your friend. Uh, that, that that kind of thing. And right. she was very evasive. annoyed and yeah. invasive that I was even calling to question her. Uh, I, 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 so I recorded all that. Soon after that, I actually, uh, without Damien asking me, I bought him a van so that he could get out of town. And uh, I, I decided to call him, and I needed to, I had wired him money, and you need to give a password, you know, when you pick up the money at, like, Western Union. Uh, and every time I would call to give him the password, the phone would cut out, right, as I was trying to give him the, the, the password. Uh, and, and, and I remembered something about collect calls, and that is when the operator's on the line asking, will you accept the collect call? Uh, you can hear each other for that one moment. So as the operator was talking to Damien, I yelled out, uh, the guy with the the 13-inch dick, because that was the password, Chino. It was this guy we knew who had a 13-inch dick. I knew that he would know that. So I had a guy with a 13-inch dick, and I just yelled it out, and then it cut off at that moment. I heard him laugh, and then it cut off. So he got the password, he got the money, he bought this van from this drug dealer that lived down some beachcomber who needed some money. $500, he got this black van. It's like this ominous, there's a picture of it in the car. I rode in it. It it was like 
a moving Auschwitz oven. It was, it, was the, the, it was just this terrible thing that you could hear coming down the street from from miles away. It was nothing covert about it. Then he and, and it was black. There was no windows. You could only get out if he, if Damien came out and like opened the passenger seat for you, the door. Uh, the, the smoke, the exhaust would come up through the floor uh, as you were driving. Uh, uh, and then he he painted all this you know Thomas Jefferson quotes on it and everything, uh, uh, various quotes from Walter Board about mind control like on the back of the thing. Uh, uh, so it was like it's just this ominous van that was not meant to be covert in any way. So he he gets in the van, he throws all his stuff in the van, he drives, leaves San Diego, he moves to, he drives all the way to Winona, Kansas. Which and on the way there, he gets kidnapped by these two redneck guys who call me on the phone. Unfortunately, I didn't have the tape recorder ready, but some parts of this book absolutely adhere to the principles of gonzo journalism. Which, with the original intent by Hunter S. Thompson, was that it would be something you wrote while the event was happening. And so, like, there's a chapter in there where these these two rednecks kidnap Damien off the side of the road, and they called me, and they're in a panic. Because Damien had told me that these little drones were following him around. When he left San Diego, these little like UFO drones were following him around. And, and so these, these two redneck guys called me. They're like, you know a guy named Damien? Uh, I'm like, yeah. He goes, he's saying some weird shit to us. And I want you to, I want you to verify it. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm like, uh, okay. He goes, you, you a professor? I go, actually, at the, at the time of this particular, I had no classes, but I was like, yeah, I'm a professor. Uh, and, and, and they said, well, what is it? What, what, he, he says that there are these drones following him, and we can see him right now. Uh, and they're, like, freaking out because there's this fucking UFO, like, following Damien. They, they picked him up off the side of the road because the van broke down. And Damien's telling the whole story. They don't believe it. They're seeing these UFOs. They think they're demons or whatever. I, I told them what they were, but they, they, they were very... Um, they wanted to misinterpret the whole thing as having something to do with the protocols of the elders of Zion, which I was perfectly willing to let them believe, uh, just as long as they helped Damien, which they did. They, I said, can you help Damien fix his van? And they said, we sure will. They, 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 they thought that you know, he was you know, fighting for justice against the, the, the evil Jews or whatever. Um, and so he ends up staying in Winona, Kansas, which is like the smallest town in Kansas. There's a hundred people in Winona, Kansas, and and uh, apparently, if you're being gang stalked, that's the term for it. That's the term for all of this gang stalked. It's where uh, someone, either the government, and I've learned since the book was published that it's not technically the government. It's 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 ex law enforcement civilians who've been pulled in by ex law enforcement. So essentially act as like government-sponsored vigilantes, which is a paradox. If you're a vigilante, you're not government-sponsored, right? right? But these people are. Uh, and, and, and so when you're getting gang-stalked, um, the whole point is it, it works well in the middle of L.A. or in San Diego or in New York. Uh, because you can be anonymous. You, you, if, if someone's following someone down the street you wouldn't necessarily know that that person's being followed. In Winona, Kansas, there's only 100 people who live there. If suddenly 25 strangers come in out of town, you're going to notice it. And also, everyone in Winona, Kansas owns a gun. So if there's some fucking invisible midget running around your kitchen, you might get shot. Uh, uh, so uh, anyone who is being gang-stalked, I, I always tell them, move to Winona, Kansas, because apparently... <laughs> 
it stopped when he moved to Winona, Kansas. Like it just all completely stopped. Yeah. Uh, and he even because the economy is as you know is much different than in L.A. He was Damien was able to buy a house in Winona, Kansas. Unfortunately, Damien has the ability to find trouble wherever he is. It wouldn't matter if the government was following him. Something would be happening. And so he he got into an argument with his landlord in Winona, and uh, it ended with him taking wet cement and pouring it into all the pipes in the house, uh, and then he got in his van and he took off. Then we met up in Seattle, and that's that's a whole chapter in the book of us actually meeting up physically in person. And and when I met up with him after he'd been in Winona, he looked much better after having been in Winona. I, I had seen photos of him, what he looked like when he left San Diego, and he looked like um, completely emaciated. And he was having um, like metallic taste in his mouth, which, as I know from Walter Boar, is a symptom of uh, EMF, you know, poisoning, you know. Uh, and and so uh, Damien, uh, he eventually moved to an area called the Lost Coast, which is up near uh, Humble, which is where his mom was living. And the second he moved in there, uh, suddenly there's all these drones like flying over. So the, so many that the other people in the area thought that they were surveilling their marijuana gardens, and they'd go out with uh, shotguns and try to shoot down the drones. You know, uh, uh, they thought it, they thought it was because of the marijuana gardens, but they none of that stuff had happened until he Damien moved in. Uh, so eventually, Damien. Uh, he he moved away from there because uh, there were just too many drones and UFOs uh, uh, attacking him, and and he he's now in the. Uh, I got an email the other day from someone claiming to be Damien's mother, and I don't know if it was his mother. I mean, I know his mother, uh, but she misspelled his name three times in the email. First in the subject headliner, and then twice in the body of the email. So I'm not certain if it was his mother, but it was someone writing me an email asking me, where is Damien? Can you give me his location? Uh, and I, I said, well, he's, uh, in case it was his mother, I just said vaguely that he's in the Pacific Northwest, which he is, and he's not living in a van anymore. Uh, uh, but the, 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 the gang stalking has been intermittent. But since the book has been published, I'm, I'm getting, now this story, if someone told you this story, sat at a bar and turned and told you this story, you'd think, that's fucking bullshit. Uh, that's that crazy. Uh, I've been contacted by so many people who said the same damn fucking thing happened to me. I, I had a guy who was a lawyer from Minnesota who heard me talking about this book and came all the way to campus to talk to me because he said I was the first person who said anything that sounded like what he was experiencing. And in his case, he was a lawyer and he represented a woman. So he had a, His client was a black woman who had successfully sued the police department in Minnesota for police brutality, and he had been her lawyer. And when that had happened, that's when this stuff started happening to him, including the invisible people. Yeah. including everything that I've said, the yeah. hallucinations. And and so in the middle of all that, uh, the, the, major, the major event that occurred was when Damien was in Winona, he was looking on the Internet, trying to find something that looked like the technology that he had seen, and he saw some stuff from like some Japanese inventor who invented an invisibility cloak, um, but that didn't look like what he had seen. And he came across this thing called ProjectChameleo.net and a scientist named Richard Schoengert, 
and and when he saw that, he said, this 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 sounds like what I saw. So I'm looking at this website, and it mentions that that Richard Schoengert is a scientist. He works for and and that and that he was a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemason in Long Beach. And and I'm uh, or he was 33rd degree, 33 degree Scottish Rite Mason living in Long Beach. I'm a 32nd degree Mason living in Long Beach, and I realize that he's part of my same lodge. He's part of my Masonic lodge. This guy, I must have met him. I email him and I say. This is all fascinating about this invisibility of technology. Can I interview you about it? Do you mind if I bring my friend along? He says, sure. So we met at the lodge. And in fact, I had met him uh, before in the past. I'd seen him performing rituals up on the stage at the Scottish Rite. And I met him and me, and I brought Damien along. And me and Damien interviewed Richard for about two and a half hours. And like halfway through it, everything he was saying was just absolutely verifying everything that Damien had said. He, he even mentioned that these, a corporation called SAIC had come to interview him about his technology several years before to the point where he thought that they were actually going to fund the project and then they just disappeared. Classic vacuum cleaner kind of activity. They suck up information, they disappear. Uh, and and uh, at some point in the interview, I turned uh, to Richard and I said, my friend has a story to tell you. And so then Damien told him everything I've just told you. And I, at first, the look on his face was a little like, I don't know, this is a little weird. But then when Damien mentioned the thing about the mirror, and then like the, the aura, like seeing the invisible people sometimes as these little specks of light, I remember he leaned forward and he said, he goes, that's exactly what it looks like when it's not working properly. And, 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 and before that moment, he had actually mentioned, just sort of speculating out loud, that he had suspected that someone had stolen his technology and that the Navy had come out and, 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 and talked to him in depth about his technology. He had spoken at several military symposiums about the technology. Uh, and he is, is, is Richard here? There he is. That's, that's, that's Richard Schoengert. He's the scientist who invented the invisibility technology that they stole from him. Uh, and and, and uh, uh, you, what was your impression? What was your impression of Damien? When 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 he when he told you this story. Well, it sounded pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, the, as far as uh, the experiences he had, they, they could have been something like someone ex, uh, experimenting on him. They, they they aligned with your your knowledge of of of, yeah. of the technology. Right. It, it made sense. Yeah. Uh, they might have done it because they figured nobody would ever believe anything. Well, that, that's another. That's something that they do. They target. Yeah. I mean, he was a drug addict. He was a drug addict in in San Diego. They like to target people who will not be believed. Yeah. Uh, and and I think it was just utter. I mean, talk about you know we're talking about on the way in the drive here. We're talking about James Joyce and Finnegan's Wake and synchronicity. It, that's one of the things they can't control is synchronicity. Uh, I mean, they had no way of knowing that the guy they picked to experiment with on this invisibility technology has a friend who's already a conspiracy theorist and writes for Paranoid Magazine, knows Walter Boart, who wrote Operation Mind Control in 1978 and is the classic book on mind control. Also, that he's part of the Scottish Rite Freemasons, and the guy in his lodge is the scientist from whom they sold the technology in the first place. <laughs> There's a, it's just like the, their brains would explode if they even try to wrap their mind around it. I got the sense. In fact, that that they were extremely impressed by Damien's um, ability to withstand anything that they threw at him. I mean, I think at a certain point, they were like, this son of a bitch. You know, let's just, just throw everything at him. And every time they would, 
he would do something unexpected. You know, sometimes people have emailed me and they've asked for advice. How do we deal with this? And really, it's like all in there. If you just do what Damien did, which is to do the unexpected and to stray off the script, that's the best way to deal with it. He, well, there was one time where they were, they were, um, they were harassing him. They were uh, doing, making strange sounds out in the parking lot. Damien had found in a dumpster this, like, graduation outfit. Like, he put on the graduation outfit, put on a Groucho Marx mustache and, like, a, and some glasses and a cigar, and he had some flour, and he ran out and just started throwing flour and confetti in the air. Like, woo! And then, he, and then he just, like, ran back inside. They were confused. They didn't know what... You know, I, they, they couldn't destroy him because he was already crazy from the yeah. beginning. Uh, so, th- I mean, that's, that's, that's the best way to deal with it. Um, but uh, uh, this when, 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 when people contact me and they ask me what to do or who, who's behind all this, I mean, I just recently, you, you and I know Randy as a mutual friend, and he has a mutual friend who's a very well-known constitutional lawyer whose name everyone would know if I mentioned it, but I'm not going to. Uh, and he recently learned that uh, the Clamshell Alliance in New England, they were protesting an atomic power plant in New England. Uh, and they had this same exact experience happen to them. Uh, they were being gang stalked and harassed in exactly the same way. They hired a lawyer to try to fight this, and uh, the uh, uh, he, the lawyer for the Clamshell Alliance, the case was thrown out. The judges threw it out. Months later, the lawyer for the Clamshell Alliance is in a gym and he's on the treadmill, and he sees over on the other treadmill is the, is the other lawyer who was representing the atomic power plant. Uh, and the, the accusation was that the, 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 the corporation had hired people to gang stalk them. The, the, the lawyer for the Clamshell Alliance approaches the other attorney and says, um, so what, you know, just between you and me, what, what the hell was really going on there? And, and he goes, oh, it's no secret. He goes, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of vigilantes. It's called the LEIU. Uh, uh, they've been around since 1956, 59. Uh, the LEIU stands for, what the hell does it stand for? So the Law Enforcement Intelligence Units. Law Enforcement Intelligence Units. They've been around since the late 50s. Uh, and they're ex-law enforcement. The ex-cops, they get, they get together. And, you know, back in the 70s with Richard Nixon, it was all about uh, plausible deniability. Now that has evolved to total deniability because there are no police officers involved in this. That's why when she, when I was talking to her on the phone, she said no one from my agency is involved in this. That's a totally honest statement. No one in her agency yeah. is involved in this. Because what they do is they contact people like in the LAIU, which is not a government organization. It's ex-law enforcement. Then they farm it out to civilians. And all you have to do is just go to someone and tell them, you know that guy... You know, neighborhood watch. You know that guy's walk down the street? He's a pedophile. He's a communist. He works for Al-Qaeda. All three of those things. He does all three of those things at the same time. And, and will you watch them for me? Uh, will you take notes on what he's doing? Uh, that, that way, that's how they're able to have so many people yeah. uh, watching. Uh, and... Um, well, Rob, Robert, that was a great... Uh, that was an answer to the first question. That was a really good answer because you indeed told your motives and to tell the story. And I said what the consequences were. And the consequences, the consequences were well were put. I got people calling me on the phone right. asking me how to deal with it. Right. And, and, and no, I don't know. It was well done. In, yeah. in fact, we'll just go back to your first book, Crypto Scatology, which I highly recommend. There's copies here. Conspiracy Theory is Art Form, which I think is a very important book because I remember reading in Vanity Fair, which is sort of a straight magazine, um, that 
conspiracy theory is a form of literature criticism. So, you know, um, there is a fine line where you can say this is political research. No, this is conspiracy theory. So how do you navigate between those two? You know, um, I've already asked you, would you go on Coast to Coast, which is the probably most listened to radio show in America, and it's lots of Bigfoot and UFO stuff, but they do have indeed some important scientists and political people on there. And you said yes, because a friend of ours went on there and she sold 6,000 books the next day. In one night. In one night. That's pretty amazing. And so that would kookify you. If you go, oh, Robert's going to be on coast to coast, then some people go, oh, he's a kook. Now, but how do you navigate? Because we know in a lot of ways this is political research. Yeah. How do you navigate between those two terms, conspiracy theory and political research? Well, I'm, I think I'm already like fully in the kook category, <laughs> so it, that, that, it's like doesn't, it wouldn't matter yeah. at that point. It's not like, you know, oh, oh, the Atlantic Monthly, now they're not going to publish this article. Right. I, I, don't, I don't think I really have to worry about that. Um, but would, would you regard well, this as research? This uh, is well-researched. It is well-researched. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's well-researched from the point of view of... of it's like when they asked Hunter S. Thompson, are you a journalist? He said, no, I'm a writer. Mark Twain was a writer. You know, I mean, I'm just writing about things that have happened to me, and it just so happened that this is like the kind of fucked up shit that happens to me. So, <laughs> uh, so I just wrote about it, you know. Uh, and um, I would not care if it was kookified because... It's you know like it's like the medium is the message. It it doesn't really matter if it's kookified because the whole point is what they the main weapon they use against everyone is fear of the unknown and ignorance. And so even if someone was listening to Coast to Coast or even if they read the book and they didn't believe it, they chose to think that it was all bullshit. Uh, it wouldn't matter because they would have heard the story. And the problem is that when this started, like when this started happening to Damien, he thought he was going crazy. And when yeah. this happens to a lot of people, they yeah. think that they are going crazy because yeah. it's designed to do that. Yeah. So if you heard someone talk about this, even if you thought it was bullshit, and it started happening to you later on, or if it started happening to a friend of yours, you would immediately identify. You'd be able to put it in a category in your brain that you've heard of before. That's gang stalking. That's that. That son of a bitch on that radio show was talking about it that night. Yeah. Oh yeah, maybe there is something to it. Yeah. So it doesn't even matter if it's if it's kookified because at least they're hearing the the information. Yeah. Uh, and you know, uh, Gloria Naylor, who wrote Mama Day yeah. and the Women of Brewster Place, very well respected uh, writer. Uh, all of this same stuff happened to her. Exactly the same stuff that happened to Damien happened to her, and she wrote about it in a book called 1996, which was not published by her main normal publisher. It was published by a small press publisher because her agent and her publisher thought she'd gone nuts. Yeah. Uh, and it's called 1996 because that's when all these events started happening to her. She was living on an island um, off the coast of Maine, I believe. Uh, and she happened to have a house next door to a guy whose brother was in the NSA, and she accidentally poisoned the guy's cat. And and at that point, that's when all this started happening for her. It was as arbitrary as that. Wow. Uh, and and uh, that went on for years for her. And she and Gloria Naylor's not a little-known person. I mean, yeah. she's a well-respected right. writer, but most people do not know that that happened to her and when she talks about it they think she's oh, she's going crazy what, yeah. uh, but um, 
So it doesn't just happen to drug addicts. Right. It happens to all sorts of yeah. people. Uh, so in, in any... Uh, you know, she's a well-respected person, but when she starts talking about it, she becomes yeah. cookified. Yeah. So it really, you got to not even be worried about that. Yeah, and it's navigating between the two. Like, a few of the reviewers of this book have, have asked, is this real? And I wanted you to pursue a little, maybe talk about <clears throat> your style, because they compare you to Philip K. Dick, Hunter Thompson, and Charles Bukowski. And, you know... Louis Bunuel said it well. I'm for anyone who seeks the truth, but I part ways when they claim they found it. So, I mean, talk about this criticism. Is this real? This is a question the reviewers are asking you, or is it a, you know? There was a couple of reviews where they would say, uh, this is a really good, this is an enjoyable book. I, I, I loved it. I, I don't think any of it's true. <laughs> and actually, as I for the same reason that I just said, they can okay. They can think it's not true, but yeah. you know, when the visible midgets pop in their house, then they'll realize that it is. <laughs> but but uh, you know, it's funny. People are so used to being lied to that yeah. when you're just direct to them, they don't believe it. It says a strange but true story of invisible spies, heroin addiction, and homeland security. You can't get more clear than a strange but true but true story. Yeah. And then, but people are like, is this some postmodern thing? Is it being ironic? Yeah. It, no, it's a strange but true story. Yeah. It says it on the cover. It's exactly <laughs> how it's labeled. You get a pan of, you know, you, get, you go in a supermarket and it says a can of peas. You open it, there's peas inside. Right. That's a, It's a strange but true story. Nothing yeah. but peas in here. Uh, and, and, uh, but there was this one woman who wrote a review and she, her reasoning was she thought that it must not be true. It must be fiction. Yeah. Because I have two quotes that begin the book. One yeah. is from Jack Finney's The Body Snatchers, which is a science fiction novel, and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is also a science fiction phantasmagorical yeah. novel. Both fiction. Since I started the book with two quotes from fictional book works, yeah. therefore everything that followed it must also be fiction. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a strange reasoning. Steve Erickson, who wrote uh, Tours of the Black Clock, that yeah. book begins with a long quote from The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which is a non-fiction book. But the book is fiction. So for some reason, I, I guess she would assume that that book is non-fiction because yeah. it begins with a quote from a non-fiction book. Yeah. Uh, so um, I, the, the, the book is as true as you think true can be. Yeah, very good. Well put. And um, you brought up the word fear. And uh, Michael Levine worked for DEA and he said, uh, can't have a war on drugs because drugs can't fight. You can't say no to drugs because drugs can't talk. So how do you personally... So this is a false fear. There's no war on drugs. You can't have a war on drugs. Frank Zappa said it well. He says you can have a war on hopelessness. That's why people take drugs. But how do you personally, Robert, deal with false fears, say, like the war on drugs? Well, in a way, that's the entire... That's, that's what the book's about, is about false fears. It's, yeah. That's how they're able to manipulate people into, into spying... Yeah. On your neighbors, uh, they use false fear. That guy's a terrorist. He, there's a point in here. I have transcripts in the middle, which uh, uh, some reviewers took. Um, they didn't like the transcripts. It went on too long. But but I, I I wanted to keep that in there so you would see that this is a real 
conversation. Like this, yeah. the, the transcripts they flow like an actual. It's not like something you'd make up for a stage play yeah. or, or something. And it, it bewilders me to think that I would be sitting around making all this shit up. Like I, I don't have be- anything better to do <laughs> than to make up like conversations that I would never have on the phone about invisible midgets. Yeah. Right? Anyway, the the uh, he says in here, Damien says at one point when they stopped him, the cops stopped him in uh, oddly enough in Minnesota, which is where that that lawyer was who came and talked to me in my office, uh, and and the, the the cops stopped him and they said uh, they said uh, someone told us that uh, you were thinking of doing something, and he's and he said who told you that? Oh, we can't say. Uh, so in other words, someone contacted the local police and said, you better watch out for this guy. Here's his license plate number. You can't miss it. It's an Auschwitz black van going down the middle of the street. Uh, you're, you're not going to be able to miss it. Stop that guy. He's been talking about doing something, which is vague enough that you could say that about anybody. I've been talking about doing something. Yeah. I've been talking about doing something for a long time. I'm sure you've been talking about <laughs> doing something. Uh, uh, and so they just drop stuff like that and instantly knowing that the other person will fill in the blanks. He's talking about doing something. He's talking about blowing something up. Obviously. Yeah. The other day I was walking down the street. This guy is on a bicycle. I don't think I've ever been gang stalked, but I, I do think that people have approached me trying to get information out of me about Damien in like really kind of bizarre and um, awkward ways. Uh, and I write about two of those incidents in here. But this was just the other day. A guy's uh, riding on, the, on a bicycle. He looked vaguely Middle Eastern, but I don't know exactly what he was. And he circles around, and he comes back up to me, and I've got a tote bag in my a Sherlock Holmes tote bag in my hand. I'm walking down the street, doo-doo-doo, and thinking to myself my own thoughts. And he stops me, and he goes, hey, he goes, it looks like you're going to go blow up something. <laughs> I'm like, what are you, I'm like, well, I know, we're in a Hawaiian shirt. He, he's like, looks like you're going to blow, is this what people look like when they go blow up something? And, and, and he's like, I just wanted to let you know, man. Look like you're going to blow, go blow up something. And I said, thank you, you know, for telling me that. And then, and then he rode away. Uh, it, it was like the, uh, in here, I talk about the guy who uh, I was going to meet my friend to go to a restaurant. This guy it intercedes with her on the bus on the way to meet me and suggests that he take us both out to dinner. Just out of the strand, total stranger out of the blue, just suggests that he takes both of us out to dinner. While we're waiting to get into the restaurant, he's ta- he suddenly starts talking to me about, um, he's like, uh, he goes, you know anything about conspiracy theories? Uh, I go, no, I don't. <laughs> No, no, anything about it. And then he seemed like a little discombobulated, like that's not the way it was supposed to go. And he goes, I've been reading this book by Milton William Cooper, Behold a Pale Horse. Have you ever heard of that book? No, I've never heard of it. What's in it? I've read it like, you know, a billion times. Right. Uh, and anyone who's in a conspiracy knows William Cooper, and they yeah. call him William Cooper. On the book, side of the book, it says Milton William Cooper. But no one calls him Milton Cooper. No. Everyone calls him Bill Cooper or That's William right. Cooper. Yeah. And, here, and here's this guy. You know Milton Cooper? Uh, and, and then he's like, uh, he goes, what do you think of this Bush administration? This is like 2005. He goes, don't you think someone should take this guy out? <laughs> like, like I'm supposed to say, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've been thinking of doing that. Uh, uh, it was a very peculiar uh, conversation. Um, well, Robert, some people might say, oh, this is disinformation. You're PSYOP. Can you... And one thing we learned uh, from, uh, you know, working with uh, Robert Dobbs, who's McLuhan's main archivist, that it's sort of like, back to Mad Magazine, you like the Marx Brothers, it's spy versus spy versus spy. So tell us, like, most people would not think there are 
services to disinformation or dis disinformation. Right. What are some of the services? There, well, Not saying that this is disinformation, but well, 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 keeping there, in there, mind. There are, uh, as McClellan said, every technology has services and disservices, so you have to keep that in mind. <clears throat> um, when this book was published, Cryptoscotology, the first book, uh, the, I sold it to Trine Day, and the, Chris Milligan is the head of Trine Day, and he assigned the book to an editor whose name was Margot. And, and she called me on the phone. She goes, you know, before I start proofreading the manuscript and making comments on it, I just want to see where your head's at. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, we had a very pleasant conversation. Uh, I thought it was a pleasant conversation. It seemed pleasant to me. But then later on, our, our relationship, it just spiraled downward. It's got more and more acrimonious. In fact, at some point, I want to take all of the marginalia that she wrote in my manuscript, and I'm going to do a separate essay called Stupid Things My Editor Told Me. Uh, <laughs> I, by the way, originally in this book was supposed to be the Bob article about about Ma- the Matrix. Yeah, and 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 both both her and and Chris Milligan they said I, I tried to include that in there and my interview with Bob that was supposed to be part of the book and they said they go I think don't think it's a good idea for you to exploit this mentally ill man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I try to explain that he, I said well he's not. Uh, technically mentally ill. I, I, um, well, as McLuhan says, you can't prove you're sane unless you have discharge papers from a mental hospital. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so I tried to argue for it, but I could see it was kind of... Um, it was, a, it was a back and forth yeah. uh, on this book. And, and there was one point in that article where I started talking about virtual reality. She writes her comment, and this is just one example of 1,500 different comments that were in the margins of the manuscript. In the margins, she wrote when I said something about virtual reality, she said, you may want to define virtual reality. Your reader may not know what that is. Uh, and that's how I went, blah, 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 blah. It was just like one of many moments like, oh, my God, uh, my head's going to explode. Um, she, in that conversation, I think where it all went south was she was asking me about the book, and I was saying, well... I say it's conspiracy theory's art form, so I didn't want to just talk about it. I wanted to demonstrate it. So the book itself is the art form, and I, in the first chapter, I subdivide it into categories. There's, there's disinformation, misinformation, satire, legitimate research, and one other thing that completely escapes my mind at the moment. But I'm sure it's extremely clever, whatever it was. <laughs> uh, and... and uh, and I said to her, I go, so therefore, throughout the book, we then see examples of each of those. And I go, so I go, a lot of, you know, conspiracy theories would not uh, like to say, oh, there's disinformation in the book. I go, but, but the, oh, yeah, there's disinformation in here because it has to be because it's showing the full spectrum of the art form. There's satire, yeah. disinformation, misinformation, legitimate research, and the other thing, yeah. the other unknown question mark. Uh, and, and... Paranormal. She seemed to okay. Uh, she seemed to to take that as uh, she seemed to understand what I was saying on the phone, but then that seemed to sh- overshadow every other subsequent. Uh, she thought I was saying, "Oh, you know, he's lying. I'm putting lies in here," which is not what I meant at all. Yeah. Uh, so that's just surveying the big picture because you're a pattern recognizer. You you study these patterns, you recognize them, and then you allow comprehensive awareness. Uh, Exactly. In, in McLuhan's Wake, the documentary about, about Marshall McLuhan, which is narrated by, by uh, Laurie Anderson, uh, who uses drones in her show. As a, <laughs> uh, she, she, um, there's one point where they're interviewing, I think, Eric McLuhan, 
McLuhan's son, and he said what, what McLuhan liked to do most was to connect things that did not seem to be connected and present them to other people. And I, when I heard that, I completely uh, identified with that because that's certainly what, what cryptoscatology is. Yeah. And to some extent, Camellia as well. Yeah. Uh, well, let's stay on this book just for a second and tell us what you, why you started. This is probably Marshall McLuhan's most important book. Take today the executive as dropout. That's all you have to know is the title of his books. So 1972, he said, the police state has now become a work of art. That was the perfect... Enough said. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean yeah, it almost makes the book redundant yeah. after that sentence. Yeah. yeah. The police state is now a work of art because... They do know how to use surveillance and fear and paranoia as an art form. They use it as, as weapons. And also, I, it's in reference to the book itself, because paranoia has become a work of art, which is the book, which is a work of art. So it's, it's two levels, at least two levels, yeah. maybe 15 more. I mean, and there's, the, there's a great book on how abstract expressionism was <clears throat> sort of propped up, hooked up by the CIA. Oh yeah, well that's true. Yeah, yeah. If I I, I posted um, a, I have a website cryptoscatology.com, uh, and uh, a blog post just a few days ago was uh, I just linked over to uh, this excellent article about the CIA. Uh, was funding the major uh, socialist literary journals of the 1950s yeah. uh, at the same time that they were spying on Gabriel Garcia Marquez and they were spying on someone as innocuous as Ray Bradbury. I mean, I mean, if you've ever heard, I've heard many lectures by Ray yeah. Bradbury and you couldn't think of a more innocuous person. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I mean he, he was the ultimate optimist yeah. uh, and, and, and supported George Bush and Ronald Reagan. And here in the 1950s, they, they followed him for 10 years trying to figure out that they thought he was a communist yeah. because they thought all, all science fiction was some form of communism, which of course it is. Yeah, well, we, we're... Uh, we're going to open up to the audience really soon here, but let's uh, jump off on that for a second. I've uh, quoted uh, one of your articles from Paranoia for many years, and uh, I love it because uh, Robert wrote a well-researched uh, um, piece on how every science fiction, not every, but almost every science fiction writer worked for secret police. So Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and then Philip K. Dick is the proof because he ran around the house saying they're after me. They're they, they, so, they try to get him to write for them, but then he didn't. <laughs> he, he didn't. He didn't take the bait. Which I, I got that directly from Tessa Dick, his his widow, yeah. uh, who I've spoken to many times, and she's a big fan of both of these books. Yeah. By the way. Oh, and Tessa Dick told me that she when she read the book, she said so much of this stuff happened to me and Phil when we were living in Orange County, like stuff like. The neighbor—I I mean, I mentioned in here, like the neighbors moving out, and the new people come in, and the new people are suddenly, you know, assholes, uh, uh, and and they're spying and doing all this stuff that happened to them when they were in Orange County, and also um, the radio playing and it's not plugged in, and 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 uh, voices would come out and insult F Phil Dick, you know, uh, um, through this radio that was not plugged into the wall, and Tessa Dick said she she herself heard that, you know, yeah. it wasn't just him. Yeah. Uh, so it was either shared madness or it was actually happening. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that, that and, and and she told me when Tessa when when Phil Dick was in Canada, he got kidnapped by two literally two men in black, and and they they got him in a car and they told him that he was to put these codes and code this stuff into his books, and he refused to do that, 
And everyone thought that he was nuts for, for talking about that. Oh, that didn't happen. Uh, meanwhile, uh, when you read the biography of Anthony Burgess, who wrote A Clockwork Orange, his biographer talks about the fact that he was approached by British intelligence to put codes into A Clockwork Orange and that he did it. He took the bait. He, he took the check. <laughs> you know, Phil Dick didn't take the check. Uh, uh, and that's in that's not uh, a theory. It's in it's in his biography. That's that that's a deep because Anthony Burgess came out of James Joyce writing Finnegan's Wake. He'll admit that he wrote eight books on Joyce. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we all know that M.K. Ultra came out of Finnegan's Wake. Yes. So uh, let me uh, see your book for a second, and uh, we're going to open it up very soon to the audience. But you did mention. But, the word. but by the way, it's important to know that Cordner Smith whose real name was Paul Lionbarger. Cordon Smith was an important science fiction writer in the, in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, he, his real name was Paul Lionbarger, and he literally wrote the book on psychological warfare. It's called Psychological Warfare, and that was the main text that the military and the CIA and military intelligence used from, through the 50s and 60s. And, yeah. and, and, I, and, and, and an odd weird footnote, uh, Paul Lionbarger, Cordon Smith, uh, shared a, a dorm room with L. Ron Hubbard uh, at, at the same university, and apparently Aaron Hubbard was very jealous of Corner Smith because even by the point he was like 19, Corner Smith had already traveled around the world, published like a, a PhD dissertation, and he was a very learned man. And uh, a lot of the stories that Aaron Hubbard later um, spread around about himself uh, is clearly like cribbed from Corner Smith's life. Uh, it's it's a weird intersection of of personalities, yeah. you know. It's uh, we, we we could go on with that, you know. Well, Ian Fleming working with Aleister Crowley and and, and, and all that. And, 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 and uh, yeah, I so recommend people buying both your books. And I wanted to uh, alert people to uh, the the rant at the end of this book is just inspired. And there's a line that goes, "Learn to enjoy the fall." So um, you know they asked. Um, Marshall McLuhan, who did one of the best translations of Finnegan's Wake, which is, Finnegan's Wake is, you fall and you get up. That's the human condition. You laugh and you cry. Laugh, tears. You fall and you get up. You fall and you get up. That's the human condition. So they asked McLuhan, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And he goes, I'm an apocalypse. We're fucked. And, and you know, like we know, we, you study etymology, back to pattern recognition. You study where words come from. And uh, apocalypse comes from the word to reveal. So he was just like Toto in The Wizard of Oz, pulling the curtain back and let you decide. And you told me today that apocalypse also means what? A transformation. Transformation. That's, it's like the tarot card, the death card. It doesn't mean death. It means transformation. Right. So what are you, uh, Robert? Are you alerting us? Are you a pessimist or more an optimist? Well, um, as you know, in Finnegan's Wake, the, the recursive structure of the song Finnegan's Wake is that Finnegan is on the ladder. He falls down the ladder. He breaks his neck. He dies. They, they bury him, and then and they have the wake, and then he, he rises up out of the coffin again, and, and he gets drunk with everyone else, uh, and, then, and then falls down the ladder again, right? So it's a recursive. So when I said learn to enjoy the fall, I realized, by the way, that that could seem pessimistic, but the, the sentence that follows it is uh, about warning... Uh, perhaps uh, learn to enjoy the fall or think quick and figure out how to bend that damn finger back on itself until it snaps. So, <laughs> so it's like, I, could, I understood, like, well, okay, that might, seem, that might seem pessimistic, but the last sentence is really saying, or you could take action, or you could do something about it. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, that's uh, Auden, the great poet, said, 
the mystery of art is we don't know if it activates or pacifies. So we don't know if your book's going to activate people or pacify them. But I, I, I um, if, if if you read it as a novel, just as like if you if you think it's just fiction and you read it as entertainment or enjoyment, that that's that that's fine. That's a, that is a pacifying kind of kind of thing. Uh, but as I said, you know, the second the Invisible Midget starts interrogating them in the bathroom at night, then I'm sure they'll take action at that point. Yeah, and, and and that's not the end. Then you quote Hillary. Of course, could be our next president. I asked my friend. I said, I haven't talked to you about politics in eight years, so it's going to be Jeb and Hillary. What do you think? She goes, Hillary is out. They got her. They busted her. I says, it's going to be Jeb. I goes, oh. So, tell people why you took this line out of context and what the heck it means. This is a great line. It's Hillary Clinton, January 8, 2008. There will be no more invisible people in America. (laughs) (laughs) I I was... uh... I was sitting at the desk and the radio was playing and there's a, Hillary Clinton was talking to uh, a group of people and suddenly she busted out with there will be no more invisible people in America. I was like, yes! <laughs> I was like, she, she just gave it to me. It was like a present. It was like a gift. It was like, if, if Hillary Clinton's life meant anything, it was in that one moment. Uh, when she contributed that line to that book. Uh, of course, in her context, she was talking about let's help the homeless, let's help uh, the helpless, because of course, you know, she does that. And so I thought immediately, yeah, I'm going to pull that out of context. Because in the context of the book, it changes the meaning. There will be no more invisible people anymore. Uh, in, in other words, there will, be no more, there will be no more illegal surveillance. There will be no more invisible midgets. There will be no more, if, if, you know, if you want the Constitution to work the way it's supposed to, then... You can't have invisible midgets running around uh, in your bathroom. You know, I, yeah. They forgot to include that footnote uh, in the First and Second Amendment. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, yes, I was happy to pull that yeah. out of context. Yes, that definitely is out of context. She was not talking about invisible midgets in that speech, though she should have been. Yeah, and how about this out of context? This is good. So Karl Marx says the point of the world isn't to interpret it. It's to change it. Oh, Occupy Movement loved that one. They put that on cardboard signs. Marshall McLuhan would say, Karl Marx, you can't change diddly squat. Your inventions change you. How do you deal with that sort of reductive version of Marx versus McLuhan? Well, well as, as, as you and I both know, that that's a bit of a paradox on McLuhan's part because the whole point of understanding media is that media is the extensions of man. So there's no form of technology that was not created by man. So therefore, you, you know, if technology changes it, then man is changing it. Yeah. Uh, so... so I would like to have McLuhan here to ask him uh, how he would clarify that. Well, he would say, you, you mean my whole fallacy is wrong. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, 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 I wanted to mention this to you because yeah. at the end of the, of the documentary, uh, McLuhan's Wake, I was surprised. I was telling you there's a scene where he's, he's in a movie theater with Tom Schneider. Yeah. Tom Schneider's talking to him about, Tom Schneider says, do you think that television is, uh, perhaps the best form of television is, say, reporting on uh, the, sp- uh, the space launch, the launch of the space shuttle? And McLuhan's like this, like, and he j- you can just tell he just wants to be elsewhere. He doesn't yeah. want to be answering any questions about this. And it says, then it went on to say that he, at the end of his life, he was very depressed 
that his message didn't get out, that no one was really listening to what he was saying. And I thought, that's fascinating. You would think that he would be the first guy on the planet to know and be able to predict that his message was not going to get out. I mean, I mean, I mean. He yeah. said the medium is the message, so yeah. and that content didn't matter. So I was amazed that he was depressed or surprised in any way that no one understood his message. Yeah. That's a paradox to, yeah. to consider. Well, like Bob says, he he converted to Catholicism as a performance art piece. That, that, and that's perfectly explained in uh, what was the, what's the name of that essay? The one that I just read. Um, the, the, it's the fact that it's by. Um, Group name for grapefruit juice, Blogspot. So you go to that, and it's about how Joyce put Marshall's name in Finnegan's Wake in 1939. Ah, but uh, there you go. Marshall McCoon, Moonchild Me. Yeah, they, yeah. They, that was brilliant on James Joyce's part. But, you know, uh, Robert, it's been a pleasure having you here, and now we have this great audience. Anyone have any questions or comments? Don't be shy. Because I have a lot more, if no one, anybody? Okay. So, Robert, um, tell us. What, what's the, what, you oh, got a question? Go ahead. Wait, you're wearing a black hat. Is that on yeah. purpose? I'm following you. Are you trying to throw me off? <laughs> if I wear the black hat, he won't think I'm a spy. <laughs> um, um, and, and, and I'm not a student, but as a professor, how, and a, sorry, as a professor in a, in a conspiracy, would it be, would that be for a term? Or like political researcher, how does that affect your classes? Like, does it like do you bring it up in classes? Um, like, like I have an extra report in a class by a pen on um, as well, and so I've never just wondering as a teacher, how does providing writing these books affect you in class? Uh, I want to. What is your relationship to her? Are you like just friends, or yeah. you're just friends? How long have you known him? Five years. Five years, and you 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 thought that he was the perfect guy to bring here? But you're like he's the guy who needs to, to hear this is are you are you do you have any experience with like surveillance or people like following you around or anything um no i actually i like i, I, I want to say i believe i have i want to say i believe i have you think you might have yeah it's possible uh the nothing said of what you're talking about I, I, to answer your question, I, uh, it has affected well. Uh, yeah, in the book, I talk story. about uh, the, 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 this book. Actually, it's the other way around. How does the classes affect the, the conspiracy theory uh, uh, because, or the political research? Uh, the, the, uh, in the book, I talk about I was teaching. I was never going to write this book because I didn't want to write it because I didn't want to think about it because when it was happening, it was actually quite disturbing. One of my favorite books is The Mothman Prophecies by John A. Keel. Uh, and John Keel talks about how all that stuff happened in 67. He didn't write the book till 75. And he said because it almost drove him crazy. And, and I tried to express in here in the book how much this was driving me crazy. And I didn't really want to think about it anymore because it was actually quite disturbing. Uh, and But I was teaching a literature of science fiction class in 2010 at CSU Long Beach and a guy named Francisco, a student of mine, stopped me outside of class one day and he said, can you think of anything that is real but is also considered science fiction? And immediately I thought, invisibility. That's the Invisible Man, H.G. Wells, but I know it to be be real. I I know the guy who invented it. He's been right there. So I told him the whole story. I, I I told him the whole story standing in the hallway. Uh, and at the end of it, he's like, his eyes were like spinning, you know. And the next day, 
he, he asked me in class to repeat the story to everyone else in the class. So I then did. I, I told the story exactly what I just told you. And at the end of the class, everyone's eyes were spinning. Uh, and, but there was one guy who he would come to the class every day in full military garb because he was, he was in the ROTC. Uh, and, and he raises his hand. He says, sir. He was always, he'd call me sir all the time, which was disturbing. Uh, but he was, sir, uh, he goes, I just want to say that uh, I'm sworn to secrecy, but many of the things you say uh, are very similar to things that I've heard in the military, sir. Uh, and then he like, he's like sat down again. And, and everyone else who was like thinking, this guy is bullshit, like this is crazy, they were like staring at him going, oh, maybe it's not bullshit, you know? But the 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 result of that, the consequence of that was it suddenly occurred to me how to tell the story. Before, it was just endlessly complicated. I had started writing it back when it was happening, and I got like 500 words in, and I never don't finish something. Even if I think it's a piece of shit, I finish the story or the article or whatever it is. In this particular case, I got 500 words in, and I just stopped because I was like, it's too, I don't know where to start like telling the story. But when I was telling my students, I left the class that day, immediately pulled out my notebook, and I sat down and I wrote out bullet points and everything I'd said in bullet points in the order that I'd said it. And it took about like four, I was, I was crouched in the hallway, like writing this down, like bullet points people were like walking by. And, and it was like four pages and that became the outline for the book. That, that I wrote it exactly in the same sequence that I told everyone in the class the story. And I thought, that's the way to write the story. It's, it's an oral story. It, it's, it's, if you read this, the book, it's as if I'm sitting there talking to you. And it's as, as annoying and as entertaining as that. Very good. Well, it's back to Wyndham Lewis. The um, influence on Joyce, big time, said, artists live in the present and write a detailed history of the future. So in a lot of ways, that's what... Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's, that's what right. both your books are doing. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Anyone else? Go ahead back there. I'm just curious, you know, you know the election of the president is not going to change anything. So why don't we enjoy having a first woman president um, rather than, you know, like denigrate women like most white men are going to have a well, unfortunately, I'm not a white man. I'm a black woman. Uh, I, I, I self-identify as a black woman, so I wouldn't know anything about that. But, however, I would say that Donald Trump thinks he's being so outrageous. But I really, he thinks he's being really outrageous. You know, that's his main thing. I, I have this temptation to go to one of the Donald Trump rallies and just push him out of the way and say, if you elect me president, everyone gets free rape and ice cream. Rape and ice cream, everyone. And just start throwing out boxes of, here, it's a package of free ice cream and free rape. Here, here you go, uh, and then everyone will go, oh my God, we got to vote for that guy. And then I would say, okay, listen, if you vote me president, the Canadians aren't going to give us oil. We're going to give all our oil to the Canadians. Fuck that pipeline in Texas. We're going to give all our oil to the Canadians. I'm going to fuck this country up so bad. Everyone here is going to think they got fucked in every orifice like three times simultaneously. You're going to think that an aging porn star is like shooting jism in your face for a thousand years. That's how much I'm going to fuck everyone in this country. Because everyone keeps voting for people thinking, he's going to save me. Oh, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna reduce my student loans. Oh, I can't wait. And then no one ever does anything. They, no president has ever helped anybody. And so I'm just going to go out and say, I'm going to fuck all of you. And then everyone will be like, vote for that guy. Who, who's the next president? Hillary's the next president? Well, I hope so, because she's going to get rid of all the invisible people. She said so back in 2008. I, I don't grok it. As Robert Heinlein once said. 
Go ahead. Mention a name I would like to look up, but I don't remember the name. But it was Lyndon LaRouche for president. It was in, in the context of you were talking about people that Damien knew and why he was like crucified because of the people he knew, and it was right before you said Walter Bowart. Yes. The name that was he knew Walter Bowart and right before you. Well, I, I knew Walter Bowart. Oh, well, okay. And the name before you said Walter Bowart, do you remember? It was like you knew Walter Bowart and as proof of cookification. Do you remember what I said before Bowart? I missed it. Weren't you talking about the gentleman there? Richard? It was Richard. He's the, he's the one who invented invisibility technology. But he didn't know. He doesn't know Walter. No, no. He, ne- he no. never knew Richard until, until later. I, and, of course, I've known Walter since... Well, I, I met him in uh, it, 2001. This uh, is going to be on a tape, so you can okay. play it back and Thank email you. me, and I'll let you know. It's being surveilled. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Bob said a great line. Warhol said, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, and he reworded it, which is the really the, you know, what you should do with every aphorism. He said, in the future, everyone will have privacy for 15 minutes. <laughs> Well, less than that. (laughs) Yeah. Anyone else? Go ahead. Um, I'm wondering two things. If, uh, or rather, what, given your history, um, what you've written, uh, what you've taught, uh, what do you think your odds are of this happening to you? And uh, second part of that question, is there any part of you that would want that to happen uh, the second part, no. Uh, 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 it first, already has. <laughs> uh, well, uh, uh, first part. Let, let, let me tell you a, a quick story. Uh, this happened, and um, I hadn't talked, I hadn't spoken to Damien for several years, and then we got back in touch with each other. And there was one weekend where my wife and my daughter and I were going to go to Santa Barbara for the weekend, and at the last minute, I decided to stay behind and write. So. I, on, a, on a Friday, I sent Damien an email, and I said that I had just found some of I had found some of his writing in my storage space. Now, uh, I sent him an email and said, "I found your shit in my storage space. Do you want me to send it to you, or do you want me to keep it here?" And and, and that weekend, so that Saturday, now now I had a storage space that was off, that was in another city. And then in the garages underneath our apartment buildings were a series of storage spaces that were shared by the entire building. Uh, So that Saturday, I'm indoors all day writing. And then uh, at around 2 a.m., I go into the bedroom, which faced the alley. I turn the light on, and the second the light flooded the alley outside, I hear all this rustling downstairs and people running off down the alley. Uh, and I thought nothing of it. I thought someone else in the apartment building was in the garage downstairs. And I was tired anyway, so I turned out the light and I went to sleep. Next morning, I wake up about 10 a.m. I go downstairs to go to the post office. And the guy who lives downstairs from me, who's a motorcycle enthusiast, he sees me on the stairs. He goes, did you see what happened in the garage? And I go, no, what happened? He goes, come, come with me. We go downstairs, and the entire garage is in shambles. Everything, this guy had a bunch of electronic equipment, motorcycles. I had two bikes in the garage. It's, it's all scattered all over the place, but nothing's been stolen. 
They didn't, they didn't take anything. And this guy who was living downstairs thought that it was uh, some junkies from the, across the street, broke it into the garage to get something to go hawk. And I said, well, why didn't they roll out the bicycle that's right next to the door? Why didn't He goes, I don't know, maybe like when you turned the light on, they heard you and they just ran away and they panicked. Maybe. And then I started thinking about the email that I sent to Damien and I said, I found your shit in my storage space. And if you were like Barney Fife or George Zimmerman and you were reading my email, you would think, oh, he's talking about the storage space, you know, in his garage. Oh, he's still got those fucking night vision goggles. And then and then they rifle through it. Oh, there's no night vision goggles. Uh, I might as well leave this expensive bicycle uh, and these expensive motorcycles behind all this electronic equipment. And then and they scattered away. Now, I don't know if that had any, it was a strange coincidence let's just say that so and there's been other bizarre things that have occurred actually great question though go ahead read it so i wanted to thank you for writing this book because i never knew may russell personally but i was a huge fan of hers and listened to everything she's done and i always wondered about the part about the people that moved out and that Strangers moved in next door and where you should start with, with Mae Russell? Yes. And yeah. you have now validated for me the last holdout I had against her. And I was like, oh. She, of course, she, when did she die? When did Mae Russell die? Wasn't it earlier than that? Don't know. Uh, I, I, it was. Uh, she died before I was fully aware of her, and then later on I read all her stuff. So she, she's actually been a huge influence, but I wasn't aware of her while she was alive. But she was extremely important. Very important. And, uh, and also the, the queen of conspiracies in in a field that's often dominated by evil men. Yes, and it, both of Rob Robert's books are available. Evil but hopefully man. they will get this book too and That's if they uh, haven't I, recommend it. I highly recommend this book The Essential May Brussel it just came out last year and uh, very important book Qu- quickly to point out that May Brussel wrote, wrote about Watergate before uh, Bernstein and, and Woodward and wrote about it in the pages of Paul Krasner's The Realist which was a satire magazine and she was onto it before they were yeah go ahead yeah, when uh, you were teaching at Long Beach, did you run into Frank Schnapp, who was an analyst in Vietnam, CIA type of guy? Which, which he did taught in the history department? I went back as alumni, but, and he was a speaker, and he was teaching a class at State, and he said he had to get his notes looked at by the CIA, but then I heard he wasn't, he might have been lying to people. I just wondered if you heard of him. I, the name does not ring a bell at all. I... I I'd like to talk to him if he's still around. Okay, we got time for one more question, so uh, I'll ask it. It's uh, the Essential Bay Brussel book, an important book. <clears throat> Starts off <clears throat> with an article by Paul Krasner, and he begins his article with a Franklin D. Roosevelt quote. Nothing just happens in politics. If something happens, you can be sure it was planned that way. <laughs> Any comment, Robert? Uh, just yes. <laughs> May Brussel said, you know, the president was chosen 15 years in advance. Yeah. Well, we used to say when we were on KPFK, when Clinton was in office, we don't like the president, we don't like her husband either. <laughs> there you go. That's easy. And you All can right. say that now as well. Wait, we can say it now. Yeah, sure. uh, thank you, David, and thank you, Skylight. Robert will be signing his books. Where will he be sitting? 
will be set up right here. So if you'd like to purchase the books, you can purchase them first uh, at the register. And if you give us two minutes, we'll set up uh, a table right here. Um, and just before you guys leave, if you can do me a huge favor and simply just flip up your chair and just lean up against this bookshelf, it'll make the uh, setup process go by so much, so much better. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. And thank you, Robert Guffey. All right. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.